Here we are, uh, March the 18th, 2018, lecture discussion number 15 on the book of Joel. And before we start, I just had a, a letter that is very tiny print, so it's hard for me. But it came from, a, let me see, make sure where it's from. It is from Dell in Marion, Ohio. Dell says this to us. Dear Mr. Chronister, you are most definitely a weird one. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear what you're teaching. Well, Bell, that's been going on a long time. I mean, I don't know what to say. How do I know? Well, I've tried to share some of your amazing revelations with others. Don't do it, Bell. Yeah, I could have warned you. I find very few people who are as amazed as I am <laughs> with your teaching. Where, where I want to jump up and praise God for the revelation, I'm often met with a look of indifference when I share with you with others. Not to worry, though, no harm to my character. And uh, uh, he goes on. But I just thought that was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and it is absolutely true. I recommend that you tell no one that you come to this church and you mention nothing that is said here. It's the best way to live your life for your own protection. Uh, we have kidding about that. You should see my man. Uh, so, okay, March the 18th, 2018. Thank you, Dell, for that. It's a wonderful letter. And, and anyone who wants to read the rest of it, we simply don't have the time. I know that that clock's wrong. It's off by an hour and six minutes. Is that what we found out? Okay. March 18, 2018, lecture discussion number 15 on the book of Joel. By now, after 14 lectures on Joel's prophecies, it may be apparent that I am unyieldingly insisting that Joel, the book of Joel, is principally centered on God calling his nation of Israel to repentance, to repent of their unbelief. That, as you know, occurs today. Israel does not believe that Christ is the I Am, the Ancient of Days, the God of Israel. They have unbelief here. And as of Zechariah 12, 10 through 14, and that is where Israel will mourn, they will grieve for their rejection of Jesus Christ. Joel 12, 2, 12 through 32 is identical in the sense that it is a call to Israel for repentance. Joel 2.32, which is the concluding verse of the chapter 2 of Joel, And it shall come to pass that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's Joel saying that to Israel. But you know that it also, and I should reemphasize this, that uh, or emphasize it even more so, Joel 2 responds or replies or applies to everyone. It's not just to the Jews. And you also should know that uh, Joel 2, or remember, because we've covered it before, Joel 2, 1 through 11, is tribulational. In other words, it's referring to a period of time in the tribulation, specifically Revelation 9. So the Gentiles, us, were in the mix here. Those two are, in my view, inseparable. Hi, are you visiting or just just visiting? I can't think I have permission. Mm -hmm. That's the first time that I've had permission. Now I have to have soda to remember where I am. Joel two applies to everyone. It is Revelation 9. So that verse that, that who shall ever call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Though it's tribulational, it is also true for all people. Gentiles are included. But note the order. Joel 2, if you remember, and I know some of you were not here, there's an invading force with supernatural attributes, characteristics that comes for Israel. And that, that force in the order of Joel, is followed by a call to repentance. So Israel, and, and in my view, the entire world, as, as a matter of fact, in the tribulation, undergoes this tremendous amount of warfare, and in the case of Israel, for sure, and, and frankly, all of us, there's this 
specific call to repentance. And Revelation 9 is identical in this form. Revelation 9 describes again the same invasion force that Joel 2 describes and the call of repentance is at the conclusion of both of these chapters. So I have invasion force, I have invasion force, I have repentance call, I have repentance call. That is the order of both Joel 2 and Revelation chapter 9. At the end of Revelation 9, the repentance, however, is, does not occur. There is no response to the repentance of the ones that survived this war. And we've asked many times, how can that be? It doesn't make any sense. Anyway, the point, yea, a point, is that a time is going to come when great, astonishing, unexplainable signs are given that are intertwined with a call to repentance. Which, of course, is why we have spent time in Genesis 3, because Genesis 3, where the woman, uh, mostly we have spent time with the confession and the repentance of the woman. The woman is the first person in Scripture, therefore in human history, to repent of her unbelief. To repeat, Adam did not fall into unbelief. The woman fell into unbelief, being deceived. And we ended up last week at Matthew 11. For those of you who endured that, congratulations. We usually give a ribbon. We can go through one of these. But that's where we went last week. In Ma- it was Matthew 11, for which we blamed the other Daniel, who's not to can be confused with the other Daniel, who is needless to say the other Daniel. And some of you know that that makes sense. That's too bad. Specifically, we went Matthew 11, 20 through 24. And if you weren't here, that's okay. I'll try to catch you up a little bit. Uh, it's also Luke 10, 12. And we'll spend some time there today. Luke, uh, Luke 10, 12 through 22, they're centered also on repentance. They're, that's why we include them in the Joel study, which is why we went to Genesis 3, which is why they're connected to Genesis 3. Anytime the Bible has a, has a focus on repentance, you will find yourself in all of these passages. They interconnect and they often refer to each other. So Luke ten sixteen adds to the context of Matthew eleven twenty through twenty four, which you might remember was Capernaum who refused to repent even though they saw incredible signs, and it's stated in such a matter uh, that you can't separate that uh, from uh, from Matthew eleven. So let's read really fast Luke ten. Try to catch up as many people as we can. This is kind of a free game here in order to allow you to reorganize yourselves. So I'm going to read Luke 10. You will remember Matthew 11. I hope that's my plan. Some part of it at least. And it will give you some kind of refreshing. Is that what we call it in the computer? I think maybe. So here we are starting at, let's see, where shall we go? Let's start at verse 16, 15. No, let's not. Where do I want to start? I don't want to start where I wrote. Let's start at 13. No, pa, 12. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloths and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you, and you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears me, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. 
And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subjected to you, but rather rejoice because your name, your names are written in heaven. Now, I always like to include verse 21 whenever I read this portion. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord God of heaven, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and rewarded them to babes. God hides things. Very important that you know that. Those who think themselves wise will not understand his word. And let's just for today, it's for fun. Luke 10, 19 has this fascinating little piece of information, doesn't it? Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. You need to know that Christ is addressing his 70. He sends out 70, two by two. And they come back and they say, even the demons are subject to us. They were astonished by that. They couldn't believe it. Every time they confronted a demon, they were amazed that the demon did whatever they needed it to do. They had control, power. Christ says, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. What did you learn? What is Christ calling a demon? He's equating demons with serpents and scorpions. He sent, this is his commission, his commission 70, sent two by two. Just for fun, more fun, 70 is an interesting study. Moses had a 70, Christ has a 70. Don't be surprised by that. Exodus 24, 1, Numbers 11, 16, Deuteronomy 18, 15. Moses is going to do things that Christ will do. You will know that Christ is Christ because by studying Moses. The 70 of Moses, however, becomes the Sanhedrin, which of course thinks it can kill God. There's a 70 of Israel, Genesis 45, 27. So Israel is essentially, uh, its origin is in a 70. And so all of that requires attention and time, which we don't have today. But I don't want to pass it by. These scorpions and serpents are unmistakably within the environment, the conditions of Luke 10, referring to demonic forces. Satan and Satan, he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That is um, Revelation 12, 4, 12, 9. That is the precursor, I'm sorry, that is the, uh, the result of the battle in heaven between Michael's forces and Satan's forces. Christ is mentioning it here. This is the expulsion, this is the throwing of Satan, the casting of Satan to the earth. Subsequent um, to his defeat at the forces of Michael. And in that little verse that follows serpents and scorpions, we have more information, don't we? And that should alert you to where? Revelation 9, Joel 2. So Luke 10, 12 immediately connects to Revelation 9, which immediately connects to Joel 2. Luke also connects here. And scorpions and serpents is what gets you in those directions. So the locusts and the scorpions and the serpents fit together. Okay, last Sunday in the post-game discussion, we had some wonderful discussions occur. Um, they always are amazing to me. I'm, I'm much to my delight. I'm the, I say, uh, much to the delight of the aging one-eyed man of substantial girth. That would be me. That's my John Wayne reference. But I'm always really impressed by what you folks start to think of. And when you start to articulate it, it's really cool for me. And I thought it would be prudent uh, to um, kind of go over it a little bit because I was so excited by it. And I'm going to put the central elements of last week's discussion that occurred off camera. I'm going to put it into a list form. Because list makers are going to list, right? Um, 
going to try to bring some limited finality to Matthew 11. I just erased it, 20-24, as best I can. And I'm going to try to do it with this list. And what would be the definition of limited finality? Can finality be limited? What is required to finish something? Have you ever finished anything? Can you finish something? Who can say that they have finished something? Who says that they have finished something? When you say you've finished something, are you right? Who did say it is finished? Did it occur to you when you read that, he said that, that maybe you can't say it? Or what you think is finished isn't really finished. I know that I can't finish anything. I have a house at home to prove it. There are in the construction business, as you know, there's two groups of people. There are the finishing guys. And then there are the guys that actually do something. That's kind of a joke. Uh, but my point is, is the finishing guys spend an hour trying to get a... I had... Oh, he's a wonderful man. The best, the best construction... He's a construction genius. Uh, you've heard me talk about him. His name is Kelly. He had a tremendous impact on me. On me. He made us, uh, and we were all equal to one another, but he was so good at what he did. And he would had such high standards. Uh, we were re- erecting uh, column steel. It was 30 feet high. It was 30 feet in the air. He would sit back with a transit and make us adjust that column steel within an eighth of an inch. A plum. It had to be perfectly plumb. Now I understand that we're going to put uh, we're going to put steel beams on top of it, and it is really nice if it fits. You don't want to be off a foot. That's bad. But an eighth of an inch. We're out there fighting that eighth of an inch in the cold for hours, trying to get that perfectly adjusted. That was him. And if <laughs> if the wall was out of square. He would tear it apart. He would come, he'd measure it, do his diagonals. If it was out of square, tear it apart. We sheeted it off. He'd pull the sheeting off. If you sheeted off a wall that was a quarter or a half inch out of square, he made you pull the sheeting because he was not going to deal with a wall because you'd erect them almost in a panel system. That's too much information. My point is is that uh, we learned after a while that we didn't tell him anything because we'd never get nothing done. Spend forever running around trying to be perfect. So there's a difference between those who finish and those who accomplish. And that's the joke in business. All of that, can you really say that you finished anything? That leads me to our imaginary numbers real. Is your imagination real? What makes something real? What makes something exist? I'll stop, maybe. Okay, I'm going to compile a list. When all else fails, compile a list. I have Sodom and I have Capernaum. You were here last week. Christ compares them. This is God. Compares Sodom and Capernaum. He says that it will be better for, more tolerable for Sodom in their time of judgment than it will be for Capernaum. That's God that says that. He would know, wouldn't he? So, I want to uh, say... What components are present in both that make it obvious that they should be associated, that they should be compared? Well, in Sodom, we have the first thing, the foremost thing is that we have Jesus Christ. Now, you've heard me do lectures on Melchizedek where I have said that Abraham, who had met Melchizedek, who saw Melchizedek, who knew who Melchizedek was, he was the high priest and the king of of Israel, or Jerusalem. Simultaneously, only Christ can be king and high priest. He gives ties to Melchizedek, Abraham does. Now, he sees Jesus Christ come to Sodom, and he treats him exactly the same way as he he treated Melchizedek, which tells me that Christ looked the same to Abraham in both places. So Christ comes to Sodom. He is physically present in Sodom. That's a big deal. Sodom is described as haughty in Ezekiel 
16. Haughty, which is of course proud. So I have those two things on the list. Ah. And of course, they commit abominations. So, there's my list of Sodom to begin with. God says all of this to Sodom at Ezekiel. What did I say? 16? Yeah, it's 1649. I hope that's correct. And, uh, and he says that the. Somebody breaking in? Nope. That never happens. People try to leave, but nobody seems to ever break in. Let me say this. The haughty and the committing of abominations before or against or in front of me are to my face. That's what he says they do. So Jesus Christ is there. They are extraordinarily proud. Their pride is extreme. And they are committing these abominations before God, against God, in the face of God, before his face, to his face. They are not bashful about the evil that they are doing. So those are the characteristics that I think are predominant with regard to Sodom. Now, the piece of information that I think is key is that their pride causes, if you wish to think of it that way, results in, is responsible for their abominations. In other words, this great wickedness in the face of God to his face, knowing he's watching, actually mocking him while they're doing it, if you wish to think of it that way, I think is appropriate. All of this, these abominations flow from the fact that they are haughty, are proud. (coughs) Excuse me. So what exactly was Sodom proud of? What had they accomplished? What had they accomplished that uh, leads them to stand before God, to stand against God, to openly perpetrate acts of extreme evil? God says, the voices of the blood cry out to me from the earth. So what does that tell you they're doing? They're killing people. And they're enjoying it. And they dare God to do something about it. And the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. And because their sin is very grave, I will go down now according to the outcry. Because the outcry occurs, he goes down. And there he is. And Abraham and he have this meeting that's extraordinary. God explaining to Abraham the inner workings, if you will, of the triune Godhead. So this is heinous sin, Genesis 18.20. Let me repeat, what was Sodom doing? Why were they doing it? What were they so proud of uh, that heinous evil would result from it? And then why does Jesus Christ himself compares Sodom to Capernaum, which is what he, where his base of operations was. That's where his headquarters were, if you wish to think of it that way, when he was in his public ministry, walking in the midst of Israel. These two have e- equality, if you wish to think of it that way. I think that would be per- perfectly fair. He attaches Capernaum to Sodom. And not just place the two cities in sameness, but he declares that Capernaum is more so condemned than Sodom. So chew on that. What's going on in Capernaum? That God would say this about them. And you've heard me say many times the description of Sodom in popular culture, which would be what we would call Hollywood, is mostly uh, insignificant. That's not even true. It's wrong. It doesn't bear... Uh, It does not stand up to God's description of Sodom. And there are many places that he describes Sodom. So I have Jesus Christ, haughty proud, abomination, the outcry, the blood cries out, and the men are very old. How old are they? That's what's going on in Sodom. 
So all of that comes out of Ezekiel and out of Genesis. Pride, fullness of food, abundances, abundance of idleness, cruelty to the poor. Let me put all of this on there. They're cruel to the poor. They're very old. Or oh, you got that on there. Sorry. Uh, they're idle. Abundance of food, fullness of pride, blood everywhere, old men. So now we go to Capernaum to repeat the Lord God Almighty, the creator of all things, the I am, the ancient of days. He couples, he weds Capernaum to Sodom. He, God himself, says Capernaum and Sodom have equivalency. And it's for us to determine the specifics. There's my Sodom list, so what can I say about Capernaum? Can I transfer that list completely over? Would it be reasonable to do so? One thing we know for sure is Christ then physically in Capernaum. Yes, he did. Christ is in Capernaum. Just as he was in Sodom. Some will argue, well, he was outside of Sodom. I think I can make the case that he was in Sodom. He describes them as a dissolved into or unto heaven. Into would be more correct. He said, you have exalted yourself into heaven. Is that proud? Obvious question. Who has done the exalting? The implication is that this glorification is unjustified and that Capernaum will be sent to the lake of fire because of it. And and to repeat from last week, Matthew's meaning of hell or Hades in 11.23 is the lake of fire. Here's another obvious question. If it is Capernaum magnifying itself, why are they praising themselves? Look at what they've done. They have exalted themselves into heaven. What does that mean? Why are they doing it? Exaltation connotes what? If I'm exalting myself into heaven, what am I doing? Yes, yes, ma'am. This is deity. They think they have become like who? They think they have become gods. What would make them think they have become gods? They're not just bragging about having a fast car or a bunch of pizza or a nice house. They are exalting themselves unto heaven, into heaven. That is the words of Christ. What does he mean? You are calling yourself gods. Why would they do that? They're glorifying themselves. Again, exaltation is deity, power, importance. For what accomplishments do they have where they have assigned this honor to themselves? Why do they think they deserve this? I am a God. We've had men call themselves God. My lifetime. The emperor of Japan. Right now we have Erdogan of Turkey. It says it... uh, uh, he is the sultan of the Islamic world. He's really close to deciding he'll be deity. Many kings have decided that they are deity. Remember, human beings want a human king. We do not want to be ruled by God. We want to be ruled by men. It has been part of our ridiculous, indescribable instinct why? How do we do this? Why do we do it? They are, they are exalting, glorifying, praising themselves to heaven. Who else does this besides man? Who is known for exalting himself unto heaven? And I'm watching you folks. You're doing so good. This is Isaiah 14, isn't it? This is the five I wills of Satan. So, Capernaum is doing the exact same thing 
that Satan has done. Now, I want to know, has Sodom exalted themselves into heaven? They are so proud of what they're doing, they're, they're murdering people at such a rate, they don't think God can touch them. Who thinks like this? The five I wills of Satan, Isaiah 14, 13 through 15. I will ascend to heaven. That's number one. Number two, I will exalt my throne above the stars. Christ said Capernaum has exalted themselves into heaven. Do you think that's an accident? Do you think he's using that language and doesn't know it? Who wrote it? Satan said, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. That's what he said. He will be like the most high. It doesn't say he will be the most high because he knows he can't be the most high. But he will be like the most high. We've had this discussion many times. What does he mean by that? And yet the most high says to him, you shall be brought down to hell. Word for word. What he says to Capernaum. So two things bring me to Satan's five I wills that are said about Capernaum. This exalted into heaven and brought down to hell. Those are almost word for word. What has Capernaum done where Christ would refer to them this way? Now I'm proposing that the language used by the Most High God Himself at Matthew 11:23 was intentionally to lead me to lead us all to the corresponding language in Isaiah 14:13 through 15. To repeat, he he is the author of his word, duh. He is the omniscient rememberer. He's the possessor of heavens and earth, Genesis 14, 18 through 22. He would know, duh, what he authored, Isaiah, what he said to Satan. Duh, duh. All of that to establish that Capernaum was embracing the illusion of grandiosity. They were exhibiting the inevitable traits of conceit. They had tremendous conceit. What does conceit always cause? It always causes cruelty. That's what happens. That's what the Bible says. The inevitable traits of conceit is cruelty to the poor Ezekiel 16 says Sodom is guilty of cruelty to the poor so the same same obvious questions now come to bear exactly what was Capernaum proud of why had they come to a place where they where creator God himself to their face condemns them. He is in that town. He is doing incredible miracles. What are they doing if my premise holds? And I believe it can be defended. Obviously, I wouldn't present it to you. He is in Capernaum doing incredible miracles. At the same time, what are they doing? Blood, cruelty. And he declares them unrepentant. Mighty works were done in Capernaum, yet they were unaffected. The blind see. He, that's what Christ did. He told the two disciples of, of John. He showed them, listen, come and watch me do this. Take it back to John the Baptist. The blind see, the dead raised, the lame restored, deaf hear, lepers cleansed, the poor are saved, is what he said. So, I have the poor in Capernaum are preached the gospel. They are saved. They are specifically mentioned by Christ. And they are, of course, primarily mentioned in Sodom. The poor. Last Sunday I asked how many dead were raised. And who were these dead? Can you imagine if you're killing people in Capernaum? Let's just go with my, my hypothesis. You're killing people in, in Capernaum and who's there? Who's, who is the, whose base of operation is there? 
What would I do once I find out? Let's say somebody from Capernaum kills my anything, my neighbor. What do I do? I go grab my neighbor and take him where? Take him to Christ. What does Christ do? Resurrects him. How about the graveyards are filled? If, if, if there is equivalency, and there is, God makes it between Sodom and Capernaum, then I have tremendous amounts of blood crying out, which means the graveyards are full. Christ is going to the graveyards, resurrecting people. How old are they? How, how long have they been dead? How dead is dead? So how did the dead become dead? How did the blind become blind? How did the lame lose limbs? How did the deaf become deaf? And some commentators propose that Capernaum was indifferent to the mighty works of Christ. This is God. What is God doing? Try to imagine what he's doing. It's incredible. It's never been seen before. It hasn't been seen since. What we see, we see this ridiculous parody of it. And everybody goes, whoa, look at this. No one has ever even come close to doing what Jesus Christ did. He's God himself. He's the creator. He pulled people out of graves. He took people that were mutilated and he put them back together, resurrected them. No one does that but God himself. Those are the mighty works of Christ. It's not some hypnotism trick from Vegas. I don't think that they were indifferent. I disagree with the commentators with regard to Capernaum. I don't think they were indifferent to the mighty works of Christ. Indifference does not fit with Sodom. Sodom's not indifferent. They're doing it right to God's face. I think they're doing it in Capernaum. He raises one, they kill one. He condemns them. He says, it is worse to be you than Sodom. How bad is Sodom? You've got to start there. Sodom was exceedingly wicked, utterly evil. And I submit that Capernaum has to be identical if not worse. What then would cause Capernaum to be unresponsive to the raising of the dead? Why would they not repent? Why did they resist the call of Christ? Obviously, they thought that they had what? Alternatives. What are their alternatives? You see the same thing in the tribulation, don't you? It's the same thing. God is going to, in the tribulation, call people to salvation in a way we have never seen before. And they will reject him. Why? Because they think they have an alternative. I don't, I don't have to take what you're, you're offering me, eternal life. I don't need it. I got this. All the way back to Genesis 3 where the lie of the serpent was is that you will live forever in sin. That's a lie. You will not in the sense of how God defines life. He is not going to allow sin sin to continue. He will end it. And obviously Capernaum thought their alternatives were sufficient. So I asked some more. What level were they? What had they solved? What's on my list over here at Sodom that I can move over to my Capernaum list? Sodom, I'm sorry, Capernaum knew that God was in their city raising the dead. They knew it. There's no doubt. He said they knew it in Matthew 11. There wasn't anybody that didn't know it. They saw it. The two disciples of John the Baptist saw it. Everybody saw it. There's no TV there. Somebody, no video game. Somebody raises somebody from the dead and it's real. Everyone knows. As you want, just to give you a little bit of a side of how this works. Remember when Christ, of course, resurrected Lazarus? What did the Pharaoh's plot to do? That's Pharaoh's. What did the Pharisees plot to do? What is it saying? First thing they said is, we've got to kill this guy. He resurrects one, we've got to kill him. Do you think Capernaum's any different? Do you think human behavior is different? Human behavior is predictable. I say all the time, the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. 
The magicians of Pharaoh, if you're wondering how I got Pharaoh in, the, in there, because I'm trying to figure out what had Capernaum solved, and so I go to the magicians of Pharaoh. Exodus, they don't care about resurrection. Do I ever have anything like this in the Bible? Of course I do. I have the magicians of Pharaoh, Exodus 8, 16 through 19. They knew when they saw non-life become life, they said, they declared, that is the finger, that is the hand of God in the dust. That is the finger in the dust. They saw the dust become life. And resurrection is what? Dust becoming life. That's why I ask you, how old is that person in that, in that coffin? How much bone is left? Have you ever seen the picture? They found some king, I think it was. They opened up the casket to see his bones. What did they find? Did they find bones? No bones. Found dust. One bone. And so they were able to do DNA to figure out if this was in fact that particular king. It was an English king. Here's a, the, the Vatican had the, had the bones. I would like to be able to get into the Vatican for about 15, 20 hours with all of my tools and see what I could find in there. That would be kind of cool. Just for the, just for grins, they probably won't let me. No, they won't. Because I'll find things that they don't want you to know about that they have. <sighs> Resurrection is life from dust. That's why Christ writes in the dust. That's why God, Christ, did what he did at Exodus. The only non-resurrection, as an aside, violation of the law of biogenesis occurs at, Gen at Exodus 8.17. Aaron stretched out his hand and with his rod, the rod of God, that of course is a reference to Christ itself, and struck the dust of the earth and it became lice. Remember that? And here's what it says. All the dust of the land became lice. Which raises the obvious question. You've been to Egypt how much dust is in Egypt? How much lice came from that dust? All the dust of the land became lice. And the, the magicians went, oh my God. Literally, that's what they said. This is God. Look at this. We don't have any dust anymore. What do we have? Lice. Very similar to the frogs, except way out of scale. They were buried in frogs. That's one of the great stories in the Bible. Buried in frogs. You can't breathe. they got so many frogs. They're over their heads. They're everywhere. They're covered in frogs. And the Pharaoh is told they will remove the frogs from Egypt. And what does he say? Tomorrow. Now, that's amazing. The only equivalency that I can consider is walking into a teenager's room and saying, we're going to clean your room. It's a complete, total mess. You can't find anything. How about tomorrow? No one, it makes no sense why he did not want those, not on the surface, but it does make sense when you think about it. He said, give me one more day for your removal frogs. Why did he do that? What was his plan? What was his alternative? He's covered in frogs. You can't eat, you can't sleep, you can't have any water. The frogs are everywhere. Imagine frogs, this is a pretty large ceiling, what is that? Oh, I'd say that's 28 feet to the peak, maybe 30. Covered in frogs. You can't get out of the doors, you can't get in your car, you can't go anywhere. There's frogs everywhere. And I say, I can get rid of the frogs. And you say, no, I need another day with the frogs. What's he thinking? He has a plan. Obviously, he thinks he can do what? He can get rid of the frogs. How's he going to do it? Finally, he gives up. But his magicians looked at the rice, all the dust of the rice, lice. All the dust became and the land became lice, and they said, this is God. Nothing can do this. This is the hand of God. 
But Capernaum saw all those resurrections. They would not repent, as with the Pharaoh. I believe the hearts of the people of Capernaum just got harder and harder and darker and darker because that's what fits with Sodom and that's what fits with how God treats us. He gives us every opportunity to turn. He doesn't care He, in the sense of he's not counting how bad you are. He's wondering, not wondering, he's omniscient. How can I explain this? He's waiting for you to come to him and he waits a long time. But let's go back. How confident were they in their achievements? They're not going to repent. He says, God says, they won't repent. What had they done that results causes such pomposity, such presumptuousness? And you have heard me say many times that elitism, condescension. Today you heard me say it, of course, um, that it ends with eugenics. What it does. Leadism in the history of man always becomes eugenics. How's that happening in this country? It's happening here. The eugenics movement in its origins and at, at its current contemporary state in our country seeks to kill the poor. That's what they do. They don't kill the rich. Nobody kills the rich, except the French. Thank you for laughing. I worked really hard on that job. <laughs> they did. They literally killed the rich. Much to the shock and dismay of the rich. But eugenics seeks to kill the poor. That's identical to Capernaum and Sodom. Christ does the just again in our country what is the stated purpose of the eugenics movement in this country it's been around since George Bernard Shaw and Margaret Sanger what's it Lindbergh Hitler these are eugenics movements what did they say what's in their original doctrines documents kill the poor they saw the poor as inferior we have one party in this country that says things like this. God bless the eugenics movement. Are you kidding me? God is the exact opposite. Absolute Christ is the absolute opposite of that. He seeks to save the poor. He seeks out the poor to preach to them, to give them saving gospel. He resurrects them. And all you have to do to find evil, to figure out who's evil... Evil at its most dark, all you have to do is discover who is relentlessly exterminating the poor. That's your evil. It's been that way throughout all of history. And remember, he says, whoa, 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 to those who call evil good and good evil. Isaiah 5. The outcry of blood, the voices of the slaughtered shall be heard by the Most High God and he will warn, he waits, but he's going to warn and he's going to end it and the condemnation of Sodom and Capernaum comes suddenly to those that were there, the wicked that was there. They do not fear God. They don't fear him. They're doing it right in front of him. He is there in Capernaum and he is there in Sodom. And it says in Sodom they did it to the face of God. He clearly had it done to the face of God in Capernaum. Had no fear. They don't care. They have a plan. What's the plan in the tribulation? They're seeing signs from God every day that are incredible. The blending, if you will, the melding, the exposing of the supernatural with the physical is seen every day. There is no doubt. They don't care. They won't repent. They won't heed the call to be saved. Why not? They have a plan. What's the plan? I'll help you. Yeah, they have a mark on their forehead and a mark on their right hand. It is the height of delusion. There's going to be an extraordinary shock. Their, their minds are debased, reprobate. They are dark. They have no idea. And they find out finally who Jesus Christ really is. The revealing of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That is what awaits them. 
Okay, so now we can start the sermon. Thanks for trying to laugh. Let's go in really fast. We can enter into these challenges of Joel 3, 1 through 5. I know Joel 3, I'm sorry, 1 through 6. I know Joel 3, 1 through 6. Who knew that Joel would be read and studied during a Joel study? But uh, shock of all shocks, that's exactly the plan today. So let me just really fast show you these things. I won't cover them very well today. I don't think I have to. I think I've set it up really well. Most of you are still awake. It's amazing. So here we have Joel 3, 1 through 6. For behold, here it comes. Some amazing. In those days and at that time. Wow. He's telling you what day is going to happen and what time it is. When I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, this is Christ speaking, the Most High God. I will also, in those days and at that time, gather all nations, the Gentiles. So I'm going to bring back the Jews and I'm going to gather the Gentiles. And I'm going to bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. What happens in Jehoshaphat? Slaughter happens in Jehoshaphat. But slaughter has already happened, I'll tell you that. But he's going to bring them down to Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, whom they have scattered among the Gentiles. They have also divided up my land. They have cast lots for my people. They have given a boy as for a harlot. They sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Indeed, what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon? Does that remind you of Matthew eleven twenty three? Because it should, because he talks about Tyre and Sidon in Matthew eleven twenty three. In case you were thinking Joel is not related to this, which why would I blame you? O Tyre and Sidon and all the coast of Philistia, Philistia. Will you retaliate against me? (laughs) But if you retaliate against me swiftly and speedily, I will return your retaliation upon your own head because you have taken my precious good things. Your Bible might say silver and gold, but it's his precious good things is what he says. And carried into my temples my precious good things. Also the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem you have sold to the Greeks. Joel 3 begins, 3, 1 through 6 of Joel 3 begins with a behold. And therefore everything that follows we should anticipate it to be filled with astounding, wondrous information. Joel 3, 1 through 6 fulfills the promise of the behold. Trust me, there's so much there you can't even begin to know. The Valley of Jehoshaphat is a campaign of Armageddon event. That's an element there. That's what it means. Jehoshaphat carries the meaning of judgment. YHVH, the ineffable, unpronounceable name of God, will judge in Jehoshaphat. And this is a passage about a great accounting. He's coming. Just as he came to Sodom, he's coming. And the question in Sodom is a type of the revelationary tribulation. It's a portrait, a dim portrait, a small microcosm, but it's definitely got these characteristics. The obvious question then is who is being placed before Christ? When is this taking place? We know where. We know who, when, and why require processing. Knowing where, though, is the important piece. We know, you see, without dispute, that the judging by Jesus Christ, who judges all things, John 5.22. He's the judge of everything. He's told, you are told in the Bible, that all things are judged by Jesus Christ. All things are us. We're things. He's on the earth. So we know now it's not the great white throne judgment. So whatever this judging is, is not the great white throne. It is the time that he brings back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem and that he also gathers all of the Gentile nations into this valley. As you know already, most of you mouthed it to me, this is a place of great slaughter. I'm going to tell you the great slaughter has already happened. This is after the great slaughter. 
the Battle of Armageddon. I see the hand. The charges are, he's charging them. He's not going to judge the Jews. He's going to judge the Gentiles. You've scattered my people. You divided up my land. You casted lots for my people. A boy, a girl, my prized possessions, my precious good things, you sold. Again, note the Matthew eleven twenty one connection. Tyre, Sidon. And it's usually the situation, it is required that we search through the scriptures to gather these passages that provide additional information. For example, where else does God refer to children? Is this a boy and a girl? Is he in a good mood? You have sold my children. You have taken my children into your, your temples. He's judging after Armageddon. Who's there? Who survived Armageddon? Will there be survivors? Uh huh. This is them. Where else does God refer to children? Obviously, I intend to advocate for the position that my precious good things is linked to the boy for a harlot, a girl for wine, and because you have carried into it your temple, my children. I think that's exactly what it means. What do you suppose, if you want to say they're precious good things, what are precious good things to Jesus Christ? Is it money? Does he need money? What is precious to Jesus Christ at the time of the ending of the campaign of Armageddon? What made him go to Sodom? What made him condemn Capernaum? I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Tyre and Zidon, Zidon will take us, of course, to Matthew 11, as I said, but also to Ezekiel 28, because the prince of Tyre, the king of Tyre, are who? The Antichrist and Satan. Prince of Tyre is the Antichrist, the king of Tyre is Satan. We'll investigate that next week. Casting of lots. What is this casting of lots? What does it mean? They cast lots for his robe. What is casting of lots? Well, it's divination by lots. It's sortilage. It's foretelling. Some would call it sorcery, but it's not in the scripture. The scripture, in the scripture, the casting of lots was to gain the will of God. We had the pebbles, the round pe- pebbles, the ermine Ur- and the thuman, right? They're placed in the vestment, the ephod of the high priest. And then he asked God, yes or no? One's yes, one's no. You can't tell the difference. They're selected blindly. Whoa! Blindness. Is there any blindness in Capernaum? Oh, yeah, I do. But there, the, the round pebbles, the yes or the no, the priest selects yes or no blindly. Whatever the question, it would be answered by blind selection of a stone. The point is, this was a religious function. This was done on the Day of Atonement by the high priest. The goat to be slain for the sins of Israel was selected this way, as was the goat for Azazel, who is Satan. The Roman soldiers, as I said, they cast lots for the garments of Jesus. They did the same system. Blind selection of pebbles. The apostles cast lot to replace Judas. They prayed and then they cast lots. That's the obvious question. Why were the Gentile nations casting lots for the children of Israel? What were they doing? Boy, girl. In temples. What have I got in Leviticus 18.21? I got Moloch. Proverbs 6.16-17. These are the words of God. And it says that... These are that which the Lord hates. He hates hands that shed innocent blood. Okay. Since time has passed us by, as it is always does here, Joel 3, Zechariah 14, Matthew 25. 
same thing. The biblical evidences will show that Joel 3, Zechariah 14, Matthew 25 are describing the aftermath of the Battle of Armageddon, which was Revelation 19. This is the 75-day interval between the end of the time of the Gentiles and the going into the millennial rule of Christ. And Christ will gather the Gentiles who survive. And he will divide them into sheep and goats on the basis of Matthew 25, 31 through 46, and Joel 3, 1 through 6. It, again, sameness. He's on the Mount of Olives. He's going to do this on the basis of his discourse on the Mount of Olives. If you read the order of Matthew, you will find that the Mount of Olives, the, the Olive, Olivet Discourse, or the Sermon, you will read that immediately precedes the sheep and the goats and the 75-day interval. It's right in front of it. There are five parables. I hope you remember. First, Christ answers three questions out of order while he's on the Mount of Olives. Then he gives five parables. Then he tells you, I'm judging the Gentiles on the basis of those five parables. Those are in Joel 3, 1 through 6 and Zechariah 14, 1 through 9. And that's how it fits together.